This is the Near Future Laboratory Podcast, Episode 003, brought to you by the Not Everyone Needs a Podcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Julian Bleeker. This episode is a discussion with Liam Young. Liam is an Australian-born architect and filmmaker who uses design fiction and film in a really provocative and thoughtful and entertaining fashion. He also runs the MA in Fiction and Entertainment program at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, also known as SciArc. His work explores the increasingly blurred boundaries among film, fiction, design, and storytelling with the goal of prototyping and imagining the future of the city. I find this topic super interesting, the intersection of architecture and the imagination, um, mostly because it, like industrial or product design or other aspects of design that contribute to our understanding about how the world operates and how we operate in it, how we live in it, how we inhabit it, they, they have a kind of legibility by which uh, we associate these, the output of these different endeavors with imminent possibility. When you you know, see an architectural rendering of a home or building or even an entire city, it can be read as something that could be, as it's a style of presentation that indicates that something is becoming. It suggests that there is a plan of action rather than just a fantasy or pure fiction. And when you see that plan of action, you kind of enroll, enroll yourself in it and you want to know more about it. You want to know how it functions, how you could live in it. And you begin to wonder what if. Um, so Liam and I discussed this topic and, and a bunch of other things, including the role of utopian and dystopian imaginaries in thinking about the future, um, how independent creatives are able to be independent, the, uh, the overall nature of futurism, and, and a whole bunch more things. So a production note, this was recorded late fall 2019, so keep that in mind. This is all pre-pandemic. Um, and you may also hear some jingle, jangly, and tip-claw towing from the studio puppy, Chewy the dog. Also, we refer to a mysterious Tim towards the end of the podcast. We're talking about a mutual friend, Tim Mon, whose award-winning book, Infinite Detail, had recently been published. Tim and Liam are frequent collaborators, with Tim working on scripts for Liam's film projects. Um, I have Tim on in a future episode, so look out for that in the coming weeks. Also, please consider becoming a patron of the podcast. It really helps both to know that the fairly significant bit of work that goes into producing this podcast has some value for you. We don't sponsor this work with ads or corporate sponsors or the like, and there are costs associated with production and operations. I do this largely out of a passion for the topic and the conversations and the people and friends who I get to talk to. This is what motivates me to pull these things together. If that motivates you... Please show your support at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. And thank you. So with all due respect, past and present, and without further to do, here's my chat with Liam Young. Um, well, I just said, yeah, just did KCRW, actually. Oh, tell me about that. What was that about? Um, a number of things, but the main, the main impetus for it was because Sid died. Oh right, yeah. So they're doing a show about um, they're doing a show about Sid Mead and his legacy, uh, and I guess um, probably, probably Alex McDowell wasn't available, so, so I'm the, I'm the next, <laughs> yeah, the the next world builder on their list, probably. <laughs> I think that's the way they roll. And we did with you know, did you ever listen to the DNA show with Francis Anderton? So it's it's her, and I do this annual event called Fear and Wonder, which is like. 
you know, just a bunch of, uh, it's a, a conference on world building essentially, but it's a bunch of people talking about, you know, visualizing, creating worlds and entertainment. Um, and the last, the last one, I think it was the night of your near futures meetup or something. Um, and it was about, uh, it was in November 2019. So it was about the legacy of Blade Runner. Like oh. It was the time that Blade Runner was set. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about the futures of AI and we had scientists and, um, and people from entertainment looking at, you know, the, the alliances or the discrepancies between the popular cultural representation of artificial intelligence and this, the technical and scientific representation. Anyway, so we did this collab with, um, KCRW that they recorded all the conversations and interviews. So we're going to do some show on at, DNA. at the event. It was, yeah. 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 Cool. So we did, we did, we did interviews before the event and then we did the event. Um, so we're going to use those pre-interviews to do some kind of show about AI and entertainment or something. Yeah. How'd that go? Uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, we, it's, it's now, I think this is, that was the third fear and wonder that we've done. Mm-hmm. And I used to run these things in London uh, Matt Jones hosted the last one with me, actually, called Thrilling Wonder Stories that were in, in I London. I think I remember going to one. Yeah, you did, actually. Was there, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was, like, coincidental to just being my being in London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was a way of me just, like, creating a format similar to this, where I could just invite a bunch of interesting people together to jam for a while. And it was when I was fairly new to London, and it was also a way of just meeting people in town and i kind of left it behind for a number of years and then when i moved to la i was like oh, i gotta do something like this again yeah so we created this fear and wonder format and, which is, and Cyarca is a great platform for that isn't it i would imagine i mean is it or, or i mean do they yeah. provide space and yeah it's a, it's a space it's a platform yeah. there's an infrastructure there there's an av team there's a budget and um and they they produce really nice shows and they they do films out of it and stuff like that so it was, it was a way of just like bringing um a bunch of interesting folks from from film video game design art context and we just you know they they show some stuff we talk about some stuff and we talk about like the creating of imaginary worlds and why we do it and what value it is um so yeah it was pretty yeah it's pretty cool and the, the last one was um yeah trying to focus around AI. So I'm trying to make them more themed now. Right. So the AI one was useful. Um, especially like to have, so we had the, we had the person who designed, um, the personality for Microsoft's Cortana. Um, and we had them in conversation with, you know, like the, um, production designer from her and, um, the designer from Blade Runner 2049 to talk about like, you know, these humanoid representations of artificial intelligence versus this glowing circle on a screen right. and uh, Rutger Hauer versus Cortana. Yeah. And, you know, that, that in these relationships, both in entertainment and in, you know, the, the minutiae of digital assistance is the DNA of how we're going to interact with machines. Right. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to talk about that. Yeah. Have, have we started by the way? Is this, is this yeah, part of the thing? Happening. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so, so yeah, I was, so, you know, now we have a relationship with KCRW and DNA. Um, so I think, uh, when Sid passed away, it was, it was time to revisit world building sure. again. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is, and what is that to you? World building? We, I mean, we were talking earlier just about that question 
that uh, is good to kind of come back to, like, what's it good for? What does it do? Entertainment, I sort of get because there's a need for, at a just instrumental level, like we need some we need some production design. Yeah. We need this world to yeah. kind of hold hold itself together. You know, the I guess maybe the broader thing is, what is it good for? What can it mm. do? Yeah, I mean, I'm trained as an architect, so for me, world building isn't a kind of practice that uh, you know I had to adopt. It's kind of what I was trained to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I was building worlds for super rich clients and their beach houses or some despot in the Middle East that needed a giant new museum as some kind of icon of their, of, or legacy. Um, and it seemed entirely pointless and corrupt as an industry. So now... So good times. Like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a good time to be... not scarred at all by it. <laughs> so it's good, uh, good times to be an architecture world builder right now, actually, because uh, there's, there's more and more billionaires and more and more dictators that need representations of their wealth. Um, but then, you know, uh, I, I saw the same kind of practices gaining traction in the entertainment industry, in media art contexts, where you were getting a shift from traditional script-based and linear processes of production, like start a script, cast the script, attack, get money for the script, then design it, to um, to people conceptualizing worlds. You know, the success of like... Um, and the, the evolution of entertainment from broadcast to stream means that now creators are producing worlds that um, that people can get invest in, invested in and lose themselves in, which is very different from a 30-minute episode, you know, that yeah. that has to be a self-contained story for the casual viewer. What if you're, you're, you've got a class one night, so you can't watch this week's episode, but um, you can watch next week's, but you can't have you can't rely on seeing the week before in order to get the story so then you know episodes are almost 30 minute worlds whereas now when you stream stuff you can have big expansive stories that take place in these worlds like game of thrones and all that kind of stuff so yeah everything moved in the entertainment industry towards world building as opposed to um, privileging script so i started to move that practice from architecture into that into that space just because I thought it was more interesting ways of constructing stories. So essentially world building for me means it's a very spatial way of thinking about storytelling, you know, where you start not with script and plot, but you start with a narrative context and then you inhabit that context with characters and then role play and imagine what their interactions might be. And through that you start to derive plot and story. Um, And those practices we've used in, all of our films, but we've also used it in a lot of our art practice and mm-hmm. even even documentaries that we make. You know, there's an act in world building and just defining the edges of the story, um, what's inside the scope of the narrative versus what's outside. Um, uh, so that's yeah how, how my practice started to gravitate to what that direction, and I guess the story of why is or what it what its value is is. Um, related to the idea of, um, uh, you know, fiction being this amazing shared language through which our culture shares and disseminates ideas and, and being able to encode in those worlds critical ideas about the future um, to try and engage the public in important conversations about the worlds they want to inhabit. Yeah. Um, so, 
yeah, world building is is this vehicle through which we can talk about this hairy thing of the future, yeah. um, and it's a space in which we can prototype ideas about how um, uh, those various futures might play out, so that we can start to become more con- informed and active participants in shaping the ones we want to have. Yeah, you know, that's a story. That's that's what we all say, right? Like that's the the narrative about um, why we're supposed to be doing what we're doing. I don't know. I'm having some existential doubts myself, um, uh, but that's the that's the the rhetoric that we keep on telling ourselves. Yeah, at least. it is. It is it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a rhetoric, and I think one of the useful points of of having these kind of existential crises is, is to kind of keep asking and wondering mm. and trying to figure mm. out how does it, you know, how does it operate and where does it operate and for whom and in what way? I remember um, early on when I was a teenager and definitely fascinated by architecture. Um, I remember coming across this book when you used to be able to go into the Firestone Library at Princeton University and you'd go on campus. You'd get a special pass from the, the high school library and you go mm-hmm. there. And I remember coming across this, uh, this this amazing book that was just all these like artist renderings of um, outer space stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a comic book or cartoon or anything like that. It was like actual representations. It just seems like it was architecture related. Like mm-hmm. this is what this space mm-hmm. station will look like. And had all the styles that you can imagine that let's say it was made in like the sixties or seventies that they would represent those things. And I just remember being kind of like blown away. Like the, here are professionals of some description, you know, um, architect engineers or something like maybe aerospace engineers or something who were not doing it for the purposes purely of entertainment. It wasn't a comic book. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like a graphic novel. And I was just being like, is that a thing that people do for mm-hmm. like as a profession? And just exploring further and understanding maybe a little bit more about architecture when I went to Cornell undergrad, I happened to, you know, become friends with a bunch of architects who were people in the architecture school who lived in the same dorm and then Mm -hmm. ended up uh, becoming good friends. And I I just was fascinated. I'd go by the studio. I was like, what the heck is going on here? It Mm -hmm. seems uh, there's a certain level of undisciplined behavior because Mm -hmm. there were undergraduate architects working late night. Studio life was something completely foreign to me as a nerdy computer mm. programmer and um and they were they were just making things like they would you know one assignment was they had to make a piece of furniture entirely out of cardboard you know properly not just kind mm. of like hodgepodge but mm, like mm, structural mm. integrity and all kind of stuff and, um and it was it was just this facility that they were developing in themselves i guess as they were learning what it is to be an architect to imagine and then realize and and even and, and without the kind of uh in, in a different mode than what I understood engineering at the time and what I was being taught as an engineer. It's mm. like, you know, you sort of define very clearly what it is you want to build and mm. make sure that you have everything that can, and you just kind of basically follow a script in a way. I mean, there's a certain bit of innovation, I guess, in just coming up with the ideas, but at the time it was basically like, we're going to build a computer. It's like, all right, well, those have been done before, so mm. it shouldn't be too much trouble. Mm. I've just always been fascinated with that ability to create something that represented something that didn't quite yet exist or making something in order to play through what might possibly yeah. exist. And for a while I was stuck in architecture, using it as a, as a basis to describe what I was calling design fiction insofar as maybe it wasn't like the, the most clever joke or even, even a polite joke, but it's like a lot of architects basically spend their time just sort of imagining things that'll never get built. Mm. Um, I guess the more polite way of saying it's like, 
incredible amount of investment in order to do anything. Yeah. Yep. From from a you know parking structure to to someone's house to a, you know yeah. like a museum, and you'd be lucky to be involved in any one of those things that actually you know concrete gets poured mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. Yeah, I like that idea of imagining this you know this this entire discipline of you know hundreds of thousands maybe millions of trained professionals who do nothing but speculate about things that'll never yeah. go beyond maybe even a concept drawing or like a three D model. Yeah. That's why I always found it strange that like people like Dunn and Raby were really fighting for the legitimacy of speculative design as an as a discipline, mm. right? Because the world of product design, they didn't speculate like that. Because you could, if you wanted to make a bowl, you could just get a pottery wheel and throw a bowl. You know, there didn't need to be a speculation about what that bowl might mean. Right. But architecture's relationship to speculation, it's always been a part of its practice. You know, even in um, classical times, there were kind of speculative projects from architects um, purely because the the capital that needs to be mobilized in order to actualize it is so huge that no one would ever do anything if if um, the only legitimate act of an architect was to really physically build something. Um, so it's always been germane to, to architecture, I think, this idea of speculation. Um, and that's why I find it so thoroughly disappointing that you know, we train for like five years undergrad, another two years of grad school, seven years, and then two years more to get registered. That's nine years of training to then do some rich guy's beach house. Right. It seems mind-bogglingly insane. Like, yeah. why would we waste our time when we have this capacity to visualize and imagine and to speculate spatially? Um, surely there's more... Um, productive territory in order to practice than um, in this being so um, in the service of capital. Yeah. Uh, is it, so, and what do you think those other things might be? Is is like world building one of those is, to, to the degree that the rhetoric holds true and the speculation becomes something that allows us to have more of a, you know, some kind of investment in, in the future in some way. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like if we see the, the future as being this this kind of dark shadowed unknown territory then each speculation that we might make kind of somehow is like a torchlight like casts a kind of ray of light into one little area of that landscape the more the more torches we shine onto that territory the more it starts to be mapped out and the better we can start to navigate a path through it, yeah. you know. Yeah. So each little kind of speculation is like a like a light on a torch, um, illuminating a piece of the territory. Um, so I think, yeah, architects are really brilliantly suited to be able to do that. And part of it is also because the practice sits between culture and technology in a really interesting way. You know, like um, an architect does classes in philosophy. Mm-hmm. as well as classes in engineering and structure and the deflection of steel beams, um, we can have a conversation with a, with a director in a pub and an engineer and uh, a, a carpenter and a theorist, you know. Um, and a lot of um, degrees used to be like that. Um, but... As education became more and more expensive, became more and more vocationally focused, and and all of that complexity started to be stripped out for the sake of um, kind of career building. Yeah. 
Um, and architecture is one of those disciplines that just seems to hang on for the most part um, to a lot of that background. And again, like it, it seems like it's there's a whole lot of different ways of being an architect in the world beyond just making physical buildings. And that's, I still call myself an architect, you know, when I fill out my customs form, or whatever, I still put architect on there, but I have no interest in making physical buildings, but I make films or, yeah. or tell stories or whatever. Um, but I still think that that's an inherent act of architecture to start to do that. And that's kind of a wide remit, but you know, the expanded role of architecture has always been interesting and architects have always been pissing in other people's territory. Um, uh, so I'm just one in a long line of people doing that kind of stuff. Um, uh, and I do think there's value in it. I mean, maybe we can talk about what that means. Like I'm starting to, I don't know, uh, I'm starting to question the veracity through which we make the, the, about these claims that we make. Like when, when we make a design fiction, we put it out into the world. I think we're at a point where we're starting to think more critically about how we judge the success of that fiction versus another fiction. Like we've so far been measuring success based on the number of views it gets or, uh, how many publications pick it up. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, we can be more critical about that now. And, um, I think we're in a mode of reflection as a discipline starting mm. to say like, you know, instigating debate or generating a discourse or engaging the public. These are all things that we talk about as being valuable, but um, there's no real metrics to measure the success of any of that. Um, but the discipline's been around long enough. It's been established long enough for us to be able to really talk about how that, how that starts to yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and you, you have a great anecdote about, you know, the, what, what was it in your diegetic prototype thing where you're talking about what the Star Trek communicator or something like we, there must be new versions of that now, you know, like what, what's the, what's, what are the new versions of that conversation that we can have that, mm. that continue to argue for the legitimacy of what we do? Because for the most part, like, like now that I've been in LA for a while, I've been, you know, moving into the Hollywood industry. Like we still have to argue for world building as a practice. There's no line item in a budget right. for a world builder. There's a production designer. There's a concept artist that kind of do a bit of world building, but not really. Um, world builder doesn't really do what they do either. Um, you still have to argue for for your legitimacy in in this context. So, you know, I think there's there's got to be more success stories somehow because yeah. we can't keep talking about the same ones all the time. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if anyone's kind of surveyed that landscape recently, um, but that's worth doing. Yeah. I I think I, it's interesting to think of in the, in the Hollywood context. And I think the reason why I had that question about like, wait, what's going on? What, 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 what's this good for? It was more of a commercial context, so, mm. you know, a client saying like, I think we want some of whatever you guys do. It sounds kind of cool. Or at least like, <laughs> like, let's talk about it. And, and trying to figure out, you know, intuitively knowing that there's some value here. It was like, why wouldn't you want to explore possible outcomes from some maybe fairly significant strategic agenda? <laughs> what, who, you know, in what world do people not run those things through? where the consequences are high relative to mm. your success as a business. Why would you not do that? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you think, like, it's a struggle trying to legitimize world building as a practice within the entertainment industry, try trying to do it within kind of a corporate context. Like, like it's, it's, it's 
totally straightforward and makes an amazing amount of sense. But trying to find someone to to bankroll it, like you know, where do they pull the budget for that from? You know, like like most often people like Alex who are working in this applied world building space, a lot of times the funding comes from marketing budgets. Yeah. You know. Um well, like when Philips were doing their design futures stuff, um, uh, like Philips probes, again, it was it was kind of like a marketing exercise. Like it wasn't really valued in the sense of the trickle down effect of some of their innovation feeding into products. It was more like you know do something flashy and shiny and cool and get a lot of eyeballs on it. So yeah. Philips look like they're a brand that's innovating, um, and. I don't know. I, I think the 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 process becomes more and more critical right now, especially when we start to think about the seismic effect that a lot of these technologies actually have on our lives. But I st- still think that trying to argue for the value of what we do in these contexts is is just as hard of, as what it was. Um, but you're starting to see, like, we, we we have done a lot of work in consulting for, like, the automotive industry, for instance, because they are just scared, you know, so they're, they're so scared. They're willing to go through these kind of practices to try and figure out what the hell they are now, because the idea of the very model of their business is being eroded. The idea that we might buy a car and own a car and park it in a garage is imminently going to collapse and under threat. They're trying to figure out what the hell do we do now? Yeah. So they're, they're asking people like Alex or us or, you know, a bunch of design fiction people, to, to say like you know how can we turn ourselves into a mobility company not a car company yeah um what did that look like what does the future of the automotive uh, industry look like in the context of autonomous vehicles and they're desperately trying to figure that out every car company has got some r&d lab or some external kind of futurist consultant working on that problem right now um but in a way it's also too late you know they should have been calling us up 15 years ago, there were already billions of dollars in (laughs) to um, driverless cars. Um, You know, the genie's already out of the bottle. Um, We're now just scrambling to figure out how they can still make money in that context as opposed to, like, prototyping that and and playing that out at a time when it really mattered to figure out whether or not this was actually going to be productive and in what forms and, and how should we direct that kind of research funding, um, how should we direct that investment, what are the futures that we want to actually be shaping here and how does mobility start to affect that and think from that position as opposed to now they're just like, shit, how do we continue to be profitable (laughs) when no one owns a car anymore? My current hypothesis is that it's just systemic. So the nature of business is to be conservative. It's not the fact that there's just tons of innovation books. You would think that that would be part of the DNA of, Hmm the business minded professional in a way but it's like okay it's a good thing it's working and look that five percent growth a year couldn't ask for anything mm-hmm. better um let's go hit the links and just <laughs> and be done with it scott smith brought up an interesting point he, and i don't know if he's literally saying this but it, you know it's almost the kind of thing like just think about how much money any organization of the size we're sort of ruminating about spends on lobbying if they took like a hundredth of that and instead of just trying to lobby to keep things the same they just started saying like what if suppose this doesn't go well mm-hmm. suppose that you know this, this this initial plan plan a doesn't work out what's plan b but i, I wonder what because there is like there is a huge 
um, investment and industry around things like trend forecasting, you know, which is kind of what we're talking about, but but branded and 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 shaped in a very different way. And there, like a trend forecasting agency will will put together a report and they'll sell access to that report, which is just a PDF of all of our different projects mm-hmm. kind of put together by someone that reads Tumblr, um, uh, you know, sells for 250 grand to a, to a company, you know, so there's, there is an economy around uh, trends, right? But it's always, again, there's some angle to trying to figure out how to monetize that trend. Like, Oh, like the cool people are wearing, uh, rhubarb colors now. Um, you know, if we bring out rhubarb next season, we can probably get a piece of that action. Um, whereas actually that I've always thought the trend forecast report was a really interesting speculative space yeah. where you, you didn't need to reverse engineer what cool people were doing as a means to turn it into a public trend. But you could say like, well, we think it might be interesting if consumers were focused around sustainability. You know, that that's something that we think people could buy into. Maybe you want to get ahead of that and start shaping that, you know, so that the trend forecast wasn't like trying to take the temperature of the room and get ahead of the curve in order to monetize it, but it was trying to instigate yeah. new new ways of thinking and new trends. And that was seen to be a much more... Um, interesting way of of dealing with um, a forecast report, right? You know, right? Um, and rather than being kind of retroactive, it was actually proactive and trying to instigate action as opposed to just monetizing existing actions that existed in the world. Yeah. Um, so I also thought the trend forecast as a as a medium was interesting. Yeah, like super. How do you operate within that? Yeah, you know? definitely. That's uh, that's an area that's super fascinating. It made me think of uh, a project that that Nick Foster and I did. Um, at the near future, future laboratory, we call it was called green pages and mm-hmm. it was, uh, meant to be a s- subscription based service mm-hmm. specifically for the entertainment industry, mm-hmm. specifically for, uh, production designers, I guess, who they, they needed, they needed, um, some kind of mechanism that, that would, that would fill in some aspect of their, of their story plot. So it was, it was literally, it was the way it was positioned was, uh, like analyses from um, research journals and, and it was definitely techno-scientific related stuff. Here's a, 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 a new kind of weird armor-piercing smart bullet. Here's some characteristics of it and here's a picture of it and that kind of thing. And just been, people thumb through it looking at, <laughs> you know, oh, we need something like this. And th- this sounds like real research. The, the, the irony of it was, uh, the design fiction part about it was that it was all made up. So these weren't actual things, but maybe it would be useful to someone. Um, and I just found that fascinating because in the, in the same in the, in the context of the trend reports, like just that idea of like spending a couple of weeks kind of like scouring the the extant research literature from weird obscure university labs, and just trying to formulate how this could, what it is, and is would this be of use to uh, to the industry? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I just I, I came here from this. Um this interview about Sid Mead and you know, the, like I read a lot of the obituaries and people reflecting on his, his life and his work. And so much of it was, um, valuing Sid's work because he was seen to be able to predict mm. all of these technologies, you know, like he predicted the autonomous vehicle. He, um, he predicted the robotic dog. There's a robotic dog in, 
in Blade Runner. So, um, and now we have robotic dogs. People are like, yeah, Sid Mead predicted the robotic mm-hmm. dog. Um, and of course he never did any of these. He never, his work wasn't about trying to predict what was, what was to come. It was coming up with an idea, just like the little pieces in the green book and saying, Oh, wouldn't it be interesting if, if pets actually became mechanized and you would care for this robotic creature in the same way that you're caring for the dog on your lap. Um, and then some uh, engineers saw Blade Runner and went, hey, that's, a, that's great. That's a cool idea. Maybe we could make Weibo or whatever the Sony, Sony dog was. And, um, the, you know, it's not that Sid got it right. It's that Sid actually set in motion the conditions of possibility that allow this thing to occur, right. you know. So I think the, the trend forecast and, and just like you described the Green Book can actually be really – um, active conditions in, in constructing and producing realities. Um, uh, and that's the hope. And that's what I mean. Like, it'd be interesting to like, what are the other things like the robotic dog and what are the more recent examples of, of how that's actually started to occur? Um, where there's been a trickle down from speculation into action. Right. Um, uh, especially now when, um, you know, all of these cultures I describe as being before culture technologies, they're, they're coming at us faster than our cultural capacity to understand what they mean. Uh, it seems like a really valuable and important time for, for storytellers and design fictioners to, um, to start to craft and imagine the implications of some of this sort of stuff to directly feed it back in just because it, you know, the, the, the innovation is, is, is turning around faster than 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 culture can. Yeah, um, way faster. It seems yeah. at least it seems so. Um, or you know, maybe, maybe there's just that feedback loop in some way. I sometimes have trouble like distinguishing between the two. Hmm. Um, yeah, but it's like we, we we're doing a lot of work on um, data centers, for instance. Like the, you know, I, I did this book called Machine Landscapes, which is trying to catalog this emerging condition where the most critical and significant architectural spaces in the world at the moment are entirely empty of people, right? Things like data centers, fulfillment centers, um, autonomous ports, these, these spaces that touch every part of our lives. Um, uh, these are our cultural spaces, but they're entirely absent of all the things that we would associate with traditional forms of architecture. And I spent a lot of time talking to the architects of data centers, which aren't Rem Koolhaas and Zaha did. They're not like the big star architects of our age. They're just anonymous commercial architects you've never heard of. Yet they're building thousands and thousands of these data centers that are holding our cultural history. When when everything is digital, these are the repositories of of culture. Um, They're not celebrated in any way. And what's interesting is the data center never had a, a... uh, like a, a typological history. You know, if you think about um, you know, the evolution of the church as an architectural form, it's been shaped all the way through time. The data center is a typology without that kind of history. So they say, the architects say, look, when, we, when we're talking to a client about a data center, all we have to go on is the science fiction films that they've seen where they think they've seen what a data center is supposed to look like. You know, so they load in things like retinal eye scanners for security. Right. 
um, you know, uh, blue LEDs recessed in in shadow lines around the bottom of walls, um, LED glass that can turn off and on um, uh, at, a, at a switch and become solid or transparent yeah. um, because it's sci-fi, you yeah. know, and the idea of the data center is sci-fi. So there's no architectural tradition to draw upon apart from that that we see in science fiction films, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's interesting to, that... Um, this landscape of technology is drawing so heavily from those references because it's really, you know, they, they're almost without precedent. Yeah. Um, it's the only spaces they can start to draw from. Yeah. That, that's, I mean, I like that. It's that circulation loop that I just find fascinating. You mentioned the Star Trek <laughs> communicator from that technical manual. It's just uh, um, so powerful and so effective when it's, when it's, represented that way uh and you just kind of see the ways in which fact and fiction kind of slide effortlessly back and forth to each other and um that operation i guess you know my my initial curiosity was like can this be can you operationalize that so we you know, you mm-hmm. examples of where it kind of happens because because it happens because an architect is, is is drawn to architecture because they're interested in building spaces and they like kind of maybe mechanical aspects they like you know like drawings and they happen to also like science fiction so they've seen mm-hmm. science fiction films and they're, mm-hmm. they're drawing on that it comes from somewhere and mm-hmm. so my wonder is can you actually do that purposefully so can you create these kind of um, visceral somewhat fictional environments through let's call it design fiction it mm. might be like creating objects mm, it might mm, be creating mm. representations of them and then put those in front of people and engage them in a conversation to say this is you know this is a possible world um, mm. yeah i think it's what's interesting is like i don't think any of us at least in our in our kind of collective world would um deny the value of those conversations but i think like what what is the form forum for those conversations mm-hmm. to play out you know what i mean when, when you say like getting getting that fiction in front of someone like like who's that someone and in what form are they consuming that fiction right like i mean part of me moving to la was this this assumption that that you know i could start to like like trojan horses kind of encode these stories in the mediums of popular culture and we're doing like some world building now for film and tv and 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 trying to get into that space um, and I think there's value there, but it's, 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 it's a pretty broad and blunt instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, what you're talking about is the, is, is the corporate space where people might commission that, that kind of thinking. Um, but yeah, like, I think that's something that's worth reflecting on is like, like who are the people having those conversations? And I, I, I think back to things like, was it last year when the, the, the Facebook Senate hearing, you know, like 15 years after Facebook becomes a thing um we finally get around to having a senate hearing to to try and talk about how the how the fuck you know an idiot was elected on the back of this platform um uh like it's too it's it's too late um you know 15 years too late like how can you have a uh, a hearing like that how can you have a conversation like that as charged and as um critical as it was um you know, before the, before the horses bolted. Um, yeah. uh, and that's why like, I keep on talking about autonomous vehicles just cause it's the, it seems to, um, uh, be, be an issue that condenses a lot of this thinking right now. 
you can't go to an architecture school anywhere in the world without seeing the the driverless car studio you know like the the people thinking like okay how's the city going to be different what's what are we, how are we going to reuse car parks because we don't need car parks anymore um what does the street look like when we start to share it with autonomous vehicles um as if that there's some kind of idea that you know we can come up with cool ideas and that might shape how they're going to be developed like what if we find out that it's absolutely terrible like like, again there's so much money already invested in this tech that it's coming no matter what these studios uncover all they're really doing is just trying to claw back some minute possibility that it might be productive for urban space um and how how could that occur but we should have been you know having all those studios run internally in in inside ford or or them kind of consulting with a bunch of architects before they're billions of dollars into this um to have that discussion you know um so but but should it have been internal in ford or should we had that discussion like the format of the senate hearing very publicly televised that everyone could start to be a part of that i don't know like i don't know yet and that's why i guess we're trying to do the the stuff within the entertainment industry is to connect with a broader audience because i don't know yet like like what's the format and the forum and the audience for those conversations where they're most meaningful yeah um and i think when we when we're reflecting on our own practices like i think that's something we should be really thinking about is the audience for our work because we're really good at talking to the same kind of people you know there's a, there's the gallery circuit where right. all of our projects start to appear on and all of the same friends that i that i know from those openings i speak on panels with right. um you know the the discipline is large enough now for us to have quite sustained and productive careers just by circulating through that same system but i don't know yet what 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 pops out of that you know yeah. i don't know yet what shakes out of that system um and i think that question of audience is a really important one and that's why like people like scott and even you guys um at near future lab are finding ways to break out of that that circuit as well like you got you're not as embedded in the kind of the art design scene as what we are and a lot of the speculative design crew are and you're connecting more to industry which i think is is really interesting um but I, it's also the just the start of the possibilities there you know yeah for sure yeah I, it was uh, it's it's been a it's been a very deliberate effort to to break out of that or to or to try to and um we've been working on this this book project and it comes up every time we have a discussion about it is this question of who is this for and it's actually it's even gotten to the point now it's like a remarkable ability to create new projects all of which are exciting <laughs> it's like you know the overall book project was it just goes kind of by the internal working name like the manual and the original idea was like we wanted to create this you have know, like a very instructional manual for doing design fiction based on our experience and our projects that we've done in the past we we had a we had a we did a little internal workshop in geneva um late in the summer and we had all the spreads out it was like a thousand pages it was just like ridiculous it was just you know just this at one point it's kind of like wow we've done a lot of stuff and another point it's like man we need an editor and so you know things get cut and that kind of thing but it's still it's it's still like massive and it was just hard i was struggling imagining this thing um talking to anyone other than 
people would be like, oh, I've been following those guys' work. I'd love to have this on the shelf. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, yeah. and, and which would be kind of more like the art design community. The people I wanted to talk to were C-level decision makers. Like, mm -hmm, how do mm -hmm. I communicate to them? And I, I have no idea. Because I have something to tell them, yeah, they have yeah. a set of tools and resources that can help them make better yeah. decisions. Then you got it's, it's you got to boil it down to like the length of a of a flight from New York to London. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's got to be the Da Vinci Code or yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Like the biography of Elon Musk or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like again, it's it's the in architecture terms, like a really successful book, like a print run, is maybe three thousand. You know, I mean, that's like really pushing it out. Standard print run would be fifteen hundred copies for a, for a, for a solid book. You know, like yeah. at any single point in time, there's you know a hundred thousand people watching an infomercial at three a.m. for a set of steak knives. You know, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the scale of audience that we might be talking through with these documents that that end up in these boutique art bookshops is minuscule. Yeah. You know. But it can feel really good being in that audience. There's an infamous um, architecture critic, Jeff Kipnis, that it says that, you know, architects are so famous to so few people. You know, you can really feel like you've made an impact. But really all you're doing is screaming into the void. Um, uh, so I always think about when, when we're talking about books, like where is it going to sit in the bookshop or what bookshelves sure. even? You know, like is it going to be on the bestseller table? What are books on there that aren't, you know, fiction books but – or John Grisham novels or something like what, what's actually on there. And it's like bio, yeah, like the biography of Elon Musk yeah. or self-help books, I think is a really interesting medium actually that, that, that your um, design fiction book might, might kind of sit within somehow co-op yeah. that space. Um, yeah. Like how can we find ways that, that means we don't print 3000 of them. We print 30,000 of yeah. them, you know, um, uh, and I think that's interesting. I mean, we need to get better at doing that, you know, as a as a discipline. Like if we are talking about what we do in some form as a thing, as some kind of discipline, like how does it move outside of those circles um, and how does it legitimize itself to people who are outside of it? Um, and I don't think we've figured that out yet, you know, but, but it's gone beyond the point of just arguing for its own viability. Like I think we've kind of done that. And now we're kind of arguing for its uh, relevance in larger terms. You know, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you get any sense that that's that's um, that's got relevance? I mean, so in the context you're working, mm. like in the entertainment industry, is it it's work and it's a grind? But then mm. people are kind of. I think one, one, once you're in the room, it's it's so easy to to sell people, and I'm sure you've found the same thing. Like once you're in the room with the um, decision makers and you and you lay it out and say look we can do this um and the value of this is here um people bite your hand off yeah. you know it's getting it's getting into that room in the first place um or getting past the the people who are going to be signing the checks um once you're in that space um and they say yeah well, look we're working on this this new film it's about uber for crime uh what do you reckon yeah. um and uh, and then you just riff for yeah. a couple of hours and they're furiously taking notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's the easy part once you're in there. It's trying to figure out how to get into that space. Because um, we found that from our work, like once we're, you know, once we're part of the conversation, um, uh, people are really engaged and excited about um, 
what we have to say. Um, so yeah, the challenge is getting in the right rooms, um, and finding the, the, the vessels that can, that can, that can take us there. You know? Um, so I think there's, yeah, there's real scope and interest, um, at those kind of scales of audience that we're talking about for the, for this sort of stuff. So I'm excited at least until I become kind of totally jaded and (laughs) and over LA, um, in the short term, I think it's, uh, yeah, there's really interesting possibility there. And I also think it's, it's, um, you know, it's right now we, we need this kind of stuff more than ever, you know, like, you know, there's some engineer sitting, trying to program the algorithms for, um, the machine vision systems of a, of a driverless vehicle, you know, and they're making decisions about like when you see this cluster of infrared pixels or LIDAR point clouds, this is a point, this is a person don't, don't hit them. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, if you think about that engineering decision at the core of that is really big questions about what constitutes a body. You know, what color is that body? What size is that body? How fat does a person become before they stop being a person and start being a van? Um, like they're really ethical loaded decisions. There, there probably isn't an ethicist or a philosopher sitting next to them when they're coding that into the system. Um, uh, maybe there should be, um, maybe there's a, a manual that, 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 that should have been read before they got to that point, or there's some kind of primer that can help us make, um, those kind of ethical and cultural decisions about these technologies, because you can't separate the two, yeah. you know, like you can't separate technology from culture. Um, yet the, the systems that produce technology does its best to, to see them as being, yeah. um, discreet. Um, I, I, I wonder just in that, in that context, um, if, cause you know, I guess having like a, like an ethicist as part of that to me, just at first blush seems a little bit old fashioned. Mm-mm-mm. And I wonder if there's like an aspect of let's you know, just pedagogy, like what it is to become an engineer yeah. where there's yeah. where yeah. It's basically built in. Like, I'm just going to stretch this. I'm mm. not just going to go for what I think the solution is, but you know, if, if in, in the practice of, you know, being assigned a particular, you know, tasks. So mm-hmm. you're responsible for all the sensor data and you're going to make determination. Matter of fact, you just make determinations in situations where the car should emergency stop. That's all you're going to yeah. do. And 999 <laughs> other engineers will worry about a bunch of other problems. Mm-hmm. That's what you'll work on. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, I, I, just imagining rather than just going right at the task, just essentially these questions naturally come forth. Yeah. Talking about the culture of the practice. Yeah. Not, not yes. just, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause yeah. you know, cause I, I feel, it feels like that's almost the, the more, well, you know, potentially it's just all, it's a hypothesis, like the more, um, holistic as opposed to like kind of, you know, like, you know, having, I don't know how it would work, but having an ethicist, mm-hmm. like review your work like once a week or something or ask what's your <laughs> yeah. approach or how you think about this problem yeah, yeah, yeah. could be disruptive as opposed mm-hmm. to some, you know, just some engineer, even having fun with it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to just whatever run simulations mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Okay, someone's throwing a pizza at the car. Like, is that going to probably happen someday? Yeah, Someone's, yeah. Or the uh, it was the classic one that the the person who was doing a track stand on a bike and would like roll mm. forward and confuse the car. And it's like you know, just running uh, uh, through uh, those things almost in a in a in a in a very Bruno Minari esque kind of like playful. Let's just mm, see mm, 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 what the nature of this problem space is. The work that you're doing at that point is you're really mm. kind of trying to imagine and immerse yourself in this possible future world where these things happen. And none of it might be instrumentally um, 
problem solving, but you're creating in the world. You're creating more of like a kind of investment in your imagination about mm. what this world might be. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, we, um, we yeah, we, we're trying to figure out like how you might turn the things we're talking about into larger systemic um, changes, right? Like I was on a Twitter thread yesterday. Um, I can't remember who it was. was what I was talking about and, and trying to get a Twitter source survey of anti-surveillance tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's this whole canon of like, Alec, uh, Adam Harvey and CB Dazzle, the kind of anti-facial recognition makeup and Zach Blass sure. and like there's you know, a whole string of artists that have done that. We did a series of costumes for a film um, that we was shot with LiDAR scanners um, that were creating textiles we made that would um, reflect the laser scanners of driverless cars. Um, we're just doing a, a music video right now where we're working with a choreographer to create movement a vocabulary of movements that would disguise the silhouette and proportions of the body from body detection algorithms mm. that are being used in china like things like gate detection are being used to identify people so how can you how can you mess with this with the symmetry of the body through a series of movements so that the algorithm wouldn't recognize you um and someone was noting that all of those responses although interesting and certainly kind of open up that problem space and kind of and and really kind of um, problematize or at least reveal the bias, um, the unconscious bias implicit in all that tech. Um, but what they also do is put the onus on individuals to find ways to hack and combat these, these systems of power. Um, what are the meaningful projects that are out there talking about um, the systems themselves mm. um, and, and, the, and the creation and generation of the systems themselves? Um uh, and and they're they're much harder problems, you know, like like how we intervene at that scale versus the the hacker um, on the end, the cyberpunk who can find their own ways of navigating and 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 co-opting the system. They're the easy bits that that writers like Tim um, or films like ours would like really like to celebrate because um, they're catchy, but also because they're easy. <laughs> Um, it's much harder to talk about systemic change involved in the entire transfer flow of how technology comes to us. Um, and that's the thing that's actually really needed if we're going to talk about um, meaningful change. Right. Um, and that's in many ways not a technical problem. It's a cultural problem, just like the education of an engineer um, and just like climate change. And like, like climate change is not, it's not a scientific or technological problem. Right, like the science is there, the tech is there. We know, we know the issue. It's a cultural problem. The the the, the roadblocks in front of us aren't technical. Um, right. Uh, it's societal, um, which is a whole different um, uh, tool set um, that we need to employ in order to enact any kind of meaningful action on climate change. You know, and it's not going to come from the science of that. It's going to come from figuring out a cultural relationship to climate change that's going to be palatable f- across all sides of the political spectrum, you know, or it's going to get too catastrophically bad that no one can deny it. Yeah. One of the other is going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the most disturbing things that I, I think I've, 
I've, I've experienced, per, I guess, professionally or like in my my knowledge worker kind of uh, racket is just that disconnect between facts and action. It's, it's still so hard for me to get over that um, there isn't like this just direct ironclad link between that you know fact and making a decision yeah. about how to how to how to deal with that. And it was in um, uh, Interstellar. Do you remember mm-hmm. the film? Mm-hmm. Where um, they, there's there's a scene where they they're at their uh, uh, I guess it's their son or daughter's school and they're like oh in the principal's office yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was just mm-hmm. like no you don't want to be engineer no it's, you're going to be a farmer and it was just it was just <laughs> so just that that you could just in that little beat of the film you realize the world has changed mm-hmm. you know, that the, the primate the the, the the principal skills that we need are not makers they're people who grow things um, I just found that uh, remarkable yeah yeah I mean we're yeah I mean I, I'm Australian originally and I from from here I see seeing my country burn that's right um, and this um, politician that's trying to say we can't talk about climate change right now because we need to grow our economy while well, literally the country is on fire yeah. <laughs> um, is just it's just bizarre and it, it's it's a kind of an embedded like to to talk about to talk about his relationship to climate change or to, to the fires you can't not engage with his relationship to um uh christianity you know that that you're on this planet for a very short time uh on the way to some eternal life um you know to talk about that you need to invest for for multiple generations in what this planet is um to someone that believes in angels is um you know you can't separate those two things yeah. you know what i mean um uh so that's why i think it you know like that's why i think there is some value in storytelling and fiction because it it kind of operates at a cultural level um so it seems like a way to engage the the seismic issues we have in front of us might be through those modes of storytelling because um, that's what's required you know yeah. in order to convince someone like Scott Morrison the prime minister of Australia that he needs to give a shit about climate change otherwise the fires are going to keep on burning yeah. um you know that's what that's what's required is it's a fundamental ethical cultural shift in his entire worldview yeah. And how how does it? How, I mean, is it? How is it possible for people who are you know experiencing that, whether it's in Australia or wherever, mm-hmm. to not change their perception of or understanding of what's important? Because mm-hmm. that doesn't happen necessarily. I mean, no. You can have any number yeah. of school shootings and just mm-hmm. doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I, I run a. Um, I run this class at SIAC, uh, I mean, uh, separate from the master's program, I run a seminar on the geographies of fiction. And it's this tour through these landscapes that have been constructed in, in fiction. Um, most, of, most of the time, it's things like Blade Runner or uh, we do like Valley of Wind by Miyazaki. We do um, Ballard's High Rise, it's an architectural space in fiction. Um, but one of the classes I do is, um, is on Shenzhen. And I see we see, we see Shenzhen through the lens of Mike Daisy and his spoken word performance piece. Um, that of course 
famously in on this american life he was revealed that that he'd kind of stitched together this this journalistic account of of foxconn factories in shenzhen where apple products are produced from rumors and overheard conversations and um, plagiarized work of other chinese journalists versus um, his own kind of um, very small set of experiences um uh, and we try and talk about you know uh design fiction in a world post-fact, mm-hmm. post-truth, um, where actually, in many ways, storytelling and making fiction becomes a way of making the world, right? Um, uh, like if Mike Daisy's fictions, um, you know, was a small part in um, helping make Apple become more accountable for their supply chain, um, forced them to, to kind of audit um, a number of their suppliers, um, it's, you know, he was, you know, there's lots of photos of him with a bunch of protesters standing outside Apple stores with placards, calling on them to be accountable for, you know, things like the suicide nets at Foxconn and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's real ways that fiction operates with truth effects, you know, like what yeah. Foucault describes as truth effects, right? Um, uh, and, you know, you see that with, in a, in a political context, you see that in the context of propaganda. We don't talk about it anymore, but fake news, Fox, um, uh, all of the, you know, um, alternative facts world that we now occupy is basically um, evolutions of the, the logics and mechanisms of propaganda. Sure. Um, uh, and both sides do it. You know, like Obama was elected on the back of a fiction of change. Yeah. Um, uh, Trump was elected on the back of a fiction of fear or some nostalgia for an America that never existed. Um, Trump's fiction was just better than the left's fiction of like more change. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, if, if the world is produced through fictions, then I don't know how we fight that, but it also means that we just need to become makers of better f- stories um, that are more productive and more valuable than the others. Yeah. That's that's a good summarization of what I was thinking about, which is this idea of like operationalizing those mechanisms. Yeah. I guess in a way. Mm -mm -mm. Um, Of course, the fictions that I'm most drawn to maybe just as an engineer and designer are like, are like made things or representations of made things uh, that have the stories kind of spill out of them in a way, Mm -mm 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 -mm. um, just by virtue of them sort of existing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. You see, like, I don't know. I mean, who are the great design fiction artists of our age? You know, some, some could say that Elon Musk is one of them, mm. right? Oh, um, yeah. uh, where his fiction of going to Mars, like, like designing the, the rockets, the propulsion systems, the rocket systems, the, um, the, the reusable rockets and stuff like, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's using fiction as a way to actually generate innovation. You know, we sure. put 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 in place this this image of um, uh, of going going to this other planet that, that's captivating and compelling and exciting and gets his the Muskian followers tweeting. Um, uh, but on the back of it is is the impulse to kind of work back from that story and say, okay, well, actually the 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 fiction of going to Mars is actually about building a more efficient propulsion system. 
you know what I mean? Um, but I can't just build the more efficient propulsion system. I have to do the storytelling first in order to, to, to justify and to raise funds for the, for the thing that I really want to do, which is a better engine. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I think that's kind of an interesting way of starting to operationalize things like, like, um, yeah, like the, the embedded in the fiction, uh, if you reverse engineer, that is a whole lot of very meaningful, um, uh, acts of making. Sure. You know, sure. Yeah. Um, Nick Foster um, said it a bunch of times about, um, hyperloop. So it was like this, I don't know, whatever, 86 page PDF uh-huh, uh-huh. that gave it, you know, it gave it, um, veracity it just it, it felt like it was a thing and sort of imagining it and like all the subtle details like concerns about uh you know air pressure changes and its effect on people's balance and these kinds of things and it makes it seem an entirely fictional thing yeah it makes it seem plausible like mm. they've they've worked they've worked it through in a way and this, um and uh yeah it'd be interesting like how where that means of developing those things come from is it, is it just mm-hmm. like a natural impulse like let's just create this image around mm-hmm. it or 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 you know does elon musk really want to go to mars or is it mm-hmm. more about like what you're saying it's like i think there's an opportunity to grow a business around an efficient propulsion system yeah how do we yeah. do that yeah so yeah like, well, let's go to mars like, yeah okay yeah no i think so I mean, or like like seeing that there's a space to um, you know, as the U.S. shuttle program closed down, there's a space for commercial space travel or, or space freight. Um, we get in on that, yeah. um, but that's kind of dull. Let's sex, let's sex it up with some quick little renderings of, of, of getting to Mars. And they must have been – they weren't very good, you know. Like we make animations and films and like in, in a couple of weeks – with with some of my students, we could make a better animation of a trip to Mars than what Musk did. Right. Um, it's so so quick and so little budget it takes for him to construct that fiction. Yet it must have mobilized huge forces of capital to actually invest in sure. um, their their research into space freight, commercial space freight. You know, and I think that's kind of the stuff bubbling below the surface um and that's why the something like the cybertruck is also quite masterful you know like again in one move um we're talking about what cars are again yeah you know um uh and you know in the back of that is um really interesting battery tech um like how do you kind of create kind of large-scale hauling and um and uh much more torque from uh electric batteries um uh, but we can get that through wrapping it in this crazy sci-fi skin that everyone's going to start talking about. Um, and spot around town and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, like it's it's scary in its brilliance, um, uh, and you only hope that um, it's being directed in the right way, but I, I, I'm sure it's not... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't have much faith in Muskian politics, but yeah. um, uh, but it's interesting to to look at and and to observe the mechanism of and to think how we can we start to redirect it and reimagine it. Sure. Um, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Uh, the 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 idea that billionaires are going to save us is um, I don't know something that we're not really buying into. It's funny. The new project I'm doing right now is called Planet City. Um, it's a big film where we're 
imagining a single city for the entire population of the earth. So we're interested in, um, I don't know if you've read the half earth book or, um, Kim Stanley Robinson's a big fan of it. Um, he did a piece about it in the guardian. Um, uh, but it's a book called half earth. It's this theory that the way forward, the, the response to, to, to climate change and a rapidly urbanizing world is to limit human development to half the surface of the earth. You know, and and return the other fifty percent to to nature or to to will to rewild the other fifty percent and if we keep that kind of that's our that's our limit that's our that's our metric like fifty percent underneath that we're fine can't go over it that's what we're gonna that's what we're gonna stick to um uh and we're taking that and saying okay yeah fifty percent is but if you're an architect, you look at it and go actually we can do ninety eight percent earth um and we can condense the entire population into one one city right like the density of kowloon walled city which is the densest structure structure humanity has ever constructed eight billion people will live in um uh, a single city the size of um half the tokyo metropolitan area or the size of palestine basically um at the scale of um manila which is the densest city now in the world, um, the entire population could live in a city the size of a single U.S. state. Um, so we're doing, we're saying like, what does that city look like? Right. Um, uh, and actually designing that city. Um, it's super dense. Um, all of the infrastructure, all of the food, all of the energy that that city needs, all is contained within its envelope. And the entire rest of the planet is returned to this global scale park. Um, uh, and then we're, we're working with scientists and technologists and like, um, you know, looking at, um, kind of energy experts to, to literally make that city, like to, to, to find out what it would take to, to do it. Um, and then visualize it in this, in this fiction. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, uh, but yeah, the idea is to try and that, that, I mean, the fiction is obviously quite extreme, but, but through that process, we might be able to talk about how we might live more densely together. Um, sure. we might talk about, um, uh, kind of nesting, um, different renewable energy systems together. We might talk about new cultural values around ownership. What does it mean to own a house? What is, what does home even mean in a, in, in that kind of context? Do we all have to have us a home to ourselves um, with our own garden with our own landscape with our own place to to park our car um i don't know but but we're trying to open up those kind of conversations there and a big part of that project has been the reason why i'm getting to it from musk is like who would build the city like how how could this fiction possibly come about you know like is it some kind of united nations entity that gets together and says look enough is enough we're so screwed here. This is our only solution. And then all the different countries need to sign the agreement, like the Kyoto protocol and buy into it and do it. But no, we didn't go there because, um, you know, we can't even agree to, to, a emissions target. Like there's been a total failure of, of traditional statehood in combating climate change. Um, so, you know, maybe it's the billionaires like, that you know bezos and musk and um gates they all get together and put pool all their collective um uh tax evading foundations together and say right we're gonna we're gonna start we're gonna fund the city we're gonna bankroll the city everyone get on board and, and come 
Um, and then again, that's putting a huge amount of faith in um, a bunch of uh, rich men. Um, uh, and our current creation story for the city is that it emerges through um, collective action, like hashtag activism, like, you know, Greta gets on a boat, parks a boat there and creates a planet city hashtag. And then slowly, um, uh, just like we saw, like the scale of humans mobilizing for something like the climate March or the women's March, like, you know, these are, these are ended like, like collective collections of, of humans at a scale that we've never seen before in the history of the planet. Um, but they're organizing through the network. Um, so maybe that's the way that our city starts to form is through some global ground up consensus. And that's our current narrative, but it through thinking through that process, we're trying to explore like, yeah, just where are the systems of power now? Or like at what scale can we, can we tackle an issue like, like global climate change and who are going to be the, the agents that help us do it? Um, because we're not seeing any viable, um, uh, solutions to that sure you know yeah that's fascinating i mean i think you know without having seen the project but hearing your description <laughs> of it it definitely makes me think that one of the um it reminds me that one of the benefits of the kind of work that we do is 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 in the process i always try to you know find the ways to like underscore that it's like <laughs> we'll, we'll get somewhere and you'll get something at the end of it but that's really not the, <laughs> it's not it's not a solution it's like going through those conversations to try to <laughs> figure out how you're know, taking a set of conditions mm. and working them through. The, the, it's mm-hmm. not. It's not like writing a computer program where it's like, okay, I know what I want it to be, and I just mm. got a bunch mm. of little black squares mm. on the keyboard for a while, and it'll get there. I and mean, that's what you're trying to do with the book was like, essentially, brand or, or kind of like note down that process yeah. of working, right? Yeah. yeah. And and to underscore mm. that, that that you know the process is really. It's what makes you essentially through this, and it develops mm-hmm. your sensibilities and your consideration mm-hmm. around it, and, and pulling in you know a diversity of people mm-hmm. to engage in those conversations, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. feeling okay with not having a very specific deliverable. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's there is something we're not sure what it is, what it will be, mm-hmm. what it will look like, but we trust the process to take us to a point where we get somewhere, and. Yeah, that that thing at the end might just be like, oh, that was a nice. That's a nice emblem representing the work hmm. that we've done. It's a trophy. Hmm. But actually, there are about seven or eight or a dozen things that happened along the way that actually became like actionable, hmm. useful. We can. That's a program we can run that through, and it will help us achieve this particular goal. Hmm. And we'll be reminded that we got there because we have this, you know, bizarre design fiction kind of artifact or a set of videos uh, or that uh, kind uh, of thing. Yeah. I mean, and how like. How is near future lab positioning itself now? Like are you trying to do more and more uh, this kind of corporate consulting sort of work, or more work in an art space? Like, like is it like a super group that just forms every now and again when you want to make a new ba- a new album? Like <laughs> you, you guys come out of your collective positions and say, yeah, yeah, let's let's do a thing now. Yeah, quite, um, it's actually quite oh. a bit like that in, in a sense. When I first set it up, it was, it was just a blog, mm. and mm. it was a platform by which I could essentially represent things that I was interested in, work I was doing, learning about electronics or those kinds of things. And mm. the way in which I did that was representing these things not as what they were, but as what they might possibly be. Every little project I did had a, had a fiction attached to it, and that then I naturally gravitated towards like the art technology space and went to Arts Electronica a bunch of times and trying to understand 
that space as a space of exploratory engineering, technology, culture, possibilities. And that the Near Future Laboratory was a place in which those kinds of things could happen. Essentially, it was a platform for that. And it was always set up as a platform that was was only going to do things that I was really interested in doing. <laughs> so I never wanted it to be a place where in order to make our monthly nut or whatever, <laughs> we need to do whatever we need to do to get it done. And it's it remains that way. No one's going to call us to help them fix their website. They're not going to call and say, okay, can you fix, make an app for us? So the Near Future Laboratory just becomes a platform for things where we do come together and we do like a an interesting project. Mm, yeah. And, but it's like, it's just like that. Like you'll, you'll shape a, um, like, like a, a team around a, a, an email that pops in the inbox or something like, yeah, yeah. It's just like a remarkable network so that we can pull in different people at different times based on their interest in the work and their capabilities and their expertise. But do you, are you like actively trying to put near future lab out there like it, it's it still exists as the website and people like find you through the site or through other projects and work that you've done in various places and then hit you up and say hey we've got an exhibition do a piece or hey we're bowing and we want to do a we research project around this <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 we're still learning which are definitely probably about as effective as, as an artist trying to get a commission. You know, there's, <laughs> there's some things that you're good at and some things that you aren't. And you just wish that it would just all be a lot easier. Mm -hmm. But that's another reason for doing the book as a, as a platform to just kind of help. Because mm -hmm. there's one thing we do know how to do is describe mm. what we do and how we do it. Mm. But you all have kind of independent trajectories and and things that you do on your own terms. As well. As, yeah. as well and stuff yeah. In, yeah. in parallel. So you were asking about the, the bicycle thing, which was a, in, in some in some sense, a lot of people saw it as a, as a Julian went over there. I'm not sure what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it might have seemed that way to myself in, in the midst of it, but on reflection. So this is the start of our, it's been six years and three days, four days since, since I started that company. I was asked to do a presentation to kind of explain New Future Laboratory and Amada, the bicycle computer company. Mm. And I realized like that there was this connection because it's me, the way I position it's like if, if, so knowing what you know about Julian Bleeker, about me, if someone said, here's your design brief, design a bicycle computer that is slightly ahead of its time, it's mm. from the future, what would I do? <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do the, the, the sci the pure sci you know, very canonical sci-fi thing like some, a prop for a Paul Verhoeven film or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to just sort of scratch my head and spend a bit of time pondering what would be something that felt was like it was from the future because it was like contrary to expectation. Mm -hmm. There's something that's a little bit different, mm -hmm. a glancing blow on what computer means, just as a, just as a yeah. thought experiment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what came out of that. And it's just gotten out of control. <laughs> it's like the thought experiment became very, very real. But is that thought experiment then like have space for a whole series of other products and objects and, and pieces that, that are like all, all, all sit in that world space. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the thing that, that excites me most about it. Cause you know, there are any number of times we've just been like, you know what, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm over this. I mean, anything from, you know, a to Z, like mm -hmm. uh, a scary looking letter comes in the mailbox and you just don't want to open it. <laughs> anything not to live in a world where I get these kind of letters to, you know, um, 
99.99% of customers are absolutely amazing, huge fans, but you always get the 0.01% that's just like a raving lunatic off their meds and has been drinking while taking meds or who knows what's going on. <laughs> so to all the reasons not to want to do it, mm-hmm. but then it's just that it's, 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 you know, may, maybe a little bit a happy coincidence that realizing that it's a platform for doing these kinds of things. So it's a set of values and sensibilities about, um, things that I really believe in, like, you know, just a designing things with consideration and care, designing things that aren't expected to be a kind of massive burden on the environment, like mm-hmm. making hundreds of millions of dollars, just like, you know, today there were a couple of things that I, need, I needed to go ship stuff. So I needed to pack things up in DHL and mm-hmm. take it to the ship. And I was at my shipper and I was sitting there and I was like, man, look at this crap they just have on the counter. That's just crap. Like keys with the names of different universities and, and action figures, you know, painted on them, mm-hmm. um, led lights, just like crap, pure mm-hmm. crap mm-hmm. that I know they're putting there. God bless them because they're like, you know, business, we just need a residual little thing and the margins are good. And someone got them off of Alibaba and mm-hmm. it's got a nice display and it sits there fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just like, that's landfill. You know, that's, just, that's just, that's yeah. four or five, six yeah. months away from landfill when someone decides they don't like it or it drops or the key mm-hmm. bends and breaks and. You know, just so not doing that, basically, mm. I can have a platform where I can do those kinds of explorations and, mm. and also I like making things. So like making, you know, figuring out how to make things and going through that. It was a revelation one day when, you know, cause you have to do it. You have to make content to, to draw people in. You can't just, mm-hmm. you know, set up a website and hope for the best. I was out filming one day and it was just so exciting. It was the most you know, it was, it was, it was a beautiful thing. You know, two friends, one riding, one saying like, I'll drive the car and you can film <laughs> dangling out the back of my SUV <laughs> up, you know, up in Angeles national forest, completely beautiful, you know, just beautiful, like out there and, at, and, and figuring out in real time how to make a, a film about cycling that I would want to see, you know, I'm no expert at it. I'm like, how do I want to? You know, like like doing that. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, It was like it was a revelation. Like if, if I can have moments like that, if I can build an organization or you know an entity of some mm. sort that allows me to do that, and mm. gives, I mean, it feels like it's purposeful and has like you know it's very modest but very enthusiastic audience. I'm good. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, because I, I one of my um, I've never done it, but I've always wanted to do a conference that's. Um, it's only Excel spreadsheets. Like I'm really interested in business models. Right. Um, like we, t- we can talk a lot about the conversation we've just had, like, oh, I'm doing this new film about this or, um, yeah, like uh, the Star Trek communicator is cool. But I also just want to talk about literally like the models of someone's practice, like how the, how the hell do you pay the bills or buy a new bike yeah. or, or feed the dog and do this cool stuff that we like to do on the side and doing like a, yeah, like a, like an Excel spreadsheet conference where, we don't show cool work. We, you know, we've seen enough, enough, um, uh, enough conferences like that. Where, you know, I, 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 I know your work. I've, I've, I've seen your lectures about it before, but I want to see your, your books for last year. You know, I want to see, I want to see your tax return <laughs> or your Excel spreadsheet where people like honestly just talk about, well, you know, that project mm-hmm. that got lots of press. Actually, I paid for that myself. Yeah. Uh, and I was teaching and, you know, I, I got asked to do a class, but then it got canceled. So I still got the money to do it. And then that 10 grand I put into this project right. 
And that thing you saw actually was funded because this class got cancelled because no students wanted to do it. You know, like really real and Brilliant. honest stories about how we organise our lives yeah. to do the stuff that we think is important. Yeah. Because it's all, most times it's always a hustle, you know. Yeah. Like I asked Scott this as well because he came to talk to my students to try and say like, you you know, you call yourself a futurist, but who's who's paying who's paying you? Yeah. Like like. And uh, are they paying you as a futurist? Do they realize that you're a futurist when they pay right. pay you the bill? Or are you pretending that you're something else at the time, but then doing futurist stuff um, that they don't realize? Um, and just trying to talk um, really about that. Because yeah. um, I think that's as important as all the other stuff, the conceptual, totally. cultural stuff that we're talking totally about. Totally agree with that. Like how you organize your lives to be able to yeah. do it. I think that's... I think it, critical, it, right? it may be the big question that especially, you know, anyone asked, but it, it may be as a scarred educator, <laughs> that is as vital as like the skills and tools that you, that you, that you, like, how do you, how do you get into this position of doing what you're doing? And mm. I think there's, there's definitely a veneer around it that makes it seem like magic. And I've been writing this process book. It's really much more of a, of a, photo book with kind of extended captions describing it's called 260 weeks. So it's basically 260 weeks hmm. of Amada, the bicycle hmm. computer company. Hmm. And because, because I'm a overly enthusiastic photographer, keeper of the spreadsheets, you know, this is what, how much was spent on Facebook ads mm-hmm. and this is how much we got out of it and mm-hmm. what, why it made sense or didn't make sense. Again, it's like, it's like the the manual. It's like, I want the thing so I can look back and say like, how did I spend that 260 weeks? It just, you know, it becomes a blur at some point. Mm-hmm. And if I have those pictures of like, the Skype calls and the, the moments when such and so happened, or even I, at one point I was, I was traveling so frequently on the same route, basically going from here to, to Olu. I would just take pictures of, of the hotel room. Like that's, that's, you spent like three <laughs> days there and that's where you dried your wet, you know, you wet boots and that kind of thing, just as a, as a, as a recollection. But then also, you know, I think that there's, there's so many stories of the Elon Musk variety hmm. where, you know, remarkable success and so few about the challenges and mm. the kind of character building. What about the failures mm. and or the instructive mm. you know, failures? Like where's the postmortem of those? Mm. So you understand at a different level mm. the the um, uh, you know post crisis analyses of whatever it might be. it might be a battle, mm. it might be like an airline <laughs> disaster, this kind of thing where it's like okay, we need to learn from this. Like, we don't want this to go wrong again, and. I, I'm sure I'm wrong, but to, to a large degree, it doesn't seem like that's in the public mm. vocabulary around mm. businesses. Mm. It's always like, you know, one out of a thousand businesses will succeed. Okay, well, let's talk about the other 999. Yeah. Surely there's something we learned there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we also, I mean, from a business perspective, yes, definitely. But also from like my own practice and and that kind of art and design space, it's not so much business analysis and startup stuff, it, it's more like you know, there's an inventory, like you say, of, of different models of practice. Like someone teaches to pay the bills and live their life. And then teaching is great because you get lots of holidays, um, lots of breaks from term. And in that time you make work, you know, and that work doesn't need to generate an income. Hopefully it pays itself or there's some small commission which supports production costs, but essentially your rent is covered by the teaching and then you make cool stuff. So most speckled designers probably fall into that model or there's a subset of that where you don't teach, but maybe you do grant applications. So instead of teaching, you write endless grant applications. And there's a whole thing about like 
how the how the hell to write a grant application that's successful. So you rely on grants and residencies, and you're essentially that's the model of a fine artist. You know, a fine artist who doesn't sell work, who just you know does grants to to get work, and then maybe you might sell some stuff, and that's another model. Um, or there's the model of like architects often do this where they work in a shitty nine till six or it's architecture. So it's probably like nine till eight, um, in a day job. And then on the weekends or at nighttime, they'll do their cool stuff. Um, and again, it doesn't need to generate income. Um, and sometimes through that hustle, you gain enough notoriety that the, the bits you do on the side might start to get more money attached and they might start to take over and you can drop away the other stuff. But just talking about those different balances, you know, and, and the compromises that you make that someone might choose to be the fine artist and not teach and they can probably pay the rent, but they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house, you know, but someone might say, well, you know, I still want a decent car. I still want to raise a family and send them, send my kid to a school. So I'm going to, I'm going to teach most of the time, but then I'm going to do the cool stuff, you know, in the gaps when I can, when I can find it. Um, and you make those compromises. Like I want to talk about those choices mm. and those models and now in entertainment, there's a whole lot of other models. Like there's a director that does shitty commercials for Pepsi and then does some cool indie thing. That they've spent five minutes, try, five, five years trying to find the funding for on the side. Um, you know, I, I'd love to collect up all those different yeah. forms of practice. And, and that's what I kind of do with my students is just say like, shit, you're, you're dropping 70 grand to do my master's degree how are we going to, how are we going to pay that loan back right. um, when you, when you graduate, you know, we can talk about, yeah, making films and, and telling these stories, but, but you know, your student loan bill is going to start coming in. The longer you don't pay that, the bigger it's going to get. Um, uh, do you want to drive an Uber? Um, that's what most independent film directors are doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that, is that really what I'm training you to do? What other options are there? And, you know, and just having really honest, conversations about what that is and you know having conversations with people like you and 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 people that have that are doing that type of work and saying really like okay but yeah but 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 what of these things is paying the rent if it's not of these things then what is it that you're doing that that, that you're not putting on the website which actually pays the bills yeah. let's talk about that thing for a minute um and how you can you know, streamline that, engineer that, put yourself in a position to get that sorted. And then we can talk about the fun stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe partly that's a response to just me needing to fill my master's program with people that are willing to pay for it. Right. But, um, but also I think it's a, you know, it's one of these massive blind spots in thinking about creative practice that we never really talk about honestly what it takes to do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, especially in the context of everything we started with, world building, speckled design, where these things don't have established business models, that they're kind of making their own models right. as they go. Like, what does that look like? It's all well and good to say, in, you know, invent the job you want to have, but, you know. What does that mean? Yeah. Really? What does that mean? Who's going to actually pay for that? Like, yeah. how are you going to tell that to your landlord and say, well, I invented my model? Um He's still going to want to check. <laughs> he or she's still going to want to check at the end of the month. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about your pro your master's program? Um, yes, it's essentially it's a master's in world building, but it's it's titled fiction entertainment. But it's 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 a postgrad program, so it's about helping people that have 
various backgrounds. So there's no prerequisite for entry. You don't need to have an architecture degree. You don't need to have a degree in landscape design or urban design or whatever. You can have an undergraduate degree in pretty much anything. Um, and then um, you spend three semesters a year, year, which is essentially like an 18-month master's with us developing a body of work. And that body of work is um, its almost like a, a thesis project where you find your own voice as a practitioner. And sometimes that means you make a short film because you want to move into directing, um, you want to move into the film industry. Sometimes it means you make a playable demo for a video game or a VR experience or a graphic novel or a whole folio of kind of concept artwork for imaginary worlds because you're going to go into concept art practice in film or video game or something. Um, sometimes it means you do a design research project with a big research doc and uh, a, a bunch of short films exploring this topic and then you move on to IDEO or frog design or something like that. Um, so it's kind of medium agnostic, um, but it uses the methodologies of world building to create stories and then depending on where the students want to go with their careers and practice those stories become medium specific at that point they become video games they become music videos they become short films or um, scripts or graphic novels or something um uh and that's the model is to try and you know most of the time people come in with some kind of design degree background whether it's architecture landscape ui graphic design um, sometimes they come in from production design backgrounds um, or some film backgrounds or in english anthropology and they're essentially kind of trying to transition into some kind of world builder or visual storyteller in a various form and uh hopefully yeah they graduate and go off and have the tools and the network that helps them helps them to do it because we try and spend a year having conversations like the one we're just talking about right. like okay you want to be a director but what kind of director commercial director direct features shorts indies docs all of these things are totally different models um uh yeah how are you going to fund your films who's going to fund them yeah um how are you going to fund your life who's going to fund that um yeah. Where do you want to live? Uh, do you need a visa? <laughs> who's going to pay you? Who's going to do your visa for you if you want to stay in this country? Um, yeah, talk about all that kind of stuff along with the creative conversations. Yeah. Um, and it's really, at the moment, I don't see that there's any real other program like it. You know, there's no, you can't do like a master's in world building. Um, uh, it's just a, um, uh, it's kind of an outlier. There's an entertainment design program, which is focused around like designing spaceships and tanks and guns for video game. Is or that film. also, is that, where is that? Uh, a bunch of schools have them. There's okay. one, one at art center. Um, uh, Nomon is a big school here, but again, the most, they're, they're kind of like trade schools. Mm. You know, they teach you how to use ZBrush and model a dragon or something. Um, uh, and they teach you how to produce a folio that, um, you know, video game studios recognize, right. um, but it doesn't teach you the methodologies of designing a world. And that's yeah. what we try and do. Um, you know, there's production design programs, but they're just like film, film degrees that kind of focus in on production design and it becomes very niche and conservative within that space. Like you become a traditional production designer, like a traditional architect. Um, and we try and talk about world building as a more expansive practice that, that might go in a whole range of different directions. Sure. Um, 
that's the model. It seems to be, you know, it's still boutique and bespoke um, and very intimate, and we can't keep it really small. But um, hopefully, you know, we're we're just generating a whole body of graduates and alum that um, that are out there doing interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah. How many students go through the program typically? So we I curate like a list of uh, sixteen every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I cap it at 16 because it's really intimate. So, like, a big part of it is, um, like, you don't do coursework. You just develop work. So it's just one-on-one mentoring conversations with me. And then I bring in um, almost a different guest every week um, from the from associated industries in L.A. at large to come in and sit with students and talk about their stuff, um, talk about their project, but also talk about where they're going. And that... It's kind of also about instigating a professional network for them to lean on when they graduate. And a lot of them go off and graduate and end up working with the, the people that they've interacted with when I bring them into the program. Um, uh, so, yeah, we're just churning out 16 a year, which, you know, unlike a film school that might, you know, output 50 or 100 or 150 right. film graduates that are supposed to go off and be directors. It's like going to music school and saying, I'm going to be a rock star when I grow up, like, you know, it happens to like such a minute percentage of graduates. We try and have sixteen and make sure we place sixteen people in in interesting positions afterwards. You know, yeah. any bigger than that, we start to start to become unwieldy. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, so yeah, you should uh, have to drag you in. I'd um, love to, to yeah. talk about the, the the lab, but also just to just to riff off stuff with some interesting people is the idea. Yeah, that'd yeah. be super fun. Mm-mm-mm. Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> all right yeah man it's been two hours <laughs> <laughs> what, did, two what hours. did you think of uh tim's book have you have you, have you finished it yet? yeah yeah i finished it As a matter of fact i was um it was uh it, i i got i got the got the paperback it got left out it rained <laughs> and so it was just like a brick and so i said tim man um I, I can't find a copy of this in time and so he he actually sent me the audio version so i listened to it there's an audio version now. There's an audio version. He sent me one, like wow. you know, well, like a well-produced one. So yeah, just finished it um, a couple of days ago, and there's a, an epilogue of sorts. I guess I guess more it's like an interview with him, which was really interesting. Hmm. I, I I enjoyed it. The good thing about the audio thing, I guess you do it with the regular book, is I was like bookmarking all the things that I wanted to talk about, and all of them were like his little. The you know the objects and the situations mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. like the kind of design fiction stuff mm-hmm, just to kind of dig into those with him and in a way it like took it took me into like a post internet world I get the drama of like how we of how it got there mm. um, it just made me think about the other mechanisms by which that would come come about that would be Mm-mm-mm. maybe less apocalyptic catast- yeah, apocalyptic <laughs> catastrophic yeah. It was also interesting knowing him and that you know and knowing you about the cargo ships mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. that his experience with that. I, th- I thought that was, it was nice the way that kind of was represented. Yeah, there. yeah. Because we spent um, yeah our, our trip on the cargo ship was together. I mean, I've done a bunch of cargo ships since uh, before and and since, but we we did a week together on the cargo ship. That was Tim's experience, and yeah, he was fascinated by because all the cargo ship crew are Filipino. Yeah. And they're on these ridiculous contracts, like sometimes six or nine month contracts, where they never, they never, sometimes never leave the ship or never leave at least the confines of ports for that time. So they communicate with their families, yeah, through through really patchy Wi-Fi because the 
the ship uh, companies, shipping companies don't provide them with decent Wi-Fi. It's too expensive, like satellite internet and all that sort of stuff. But they they will provide um, wireless connection to the cargo, like the reefers, which are the refrigerated containers on board, because they're constantly trying to monitor the temperature of a bunch of really expensive Japanese tuna or something. Right. Um, so they yeah, piggyback on the on top of the um, wireless signal of the refrigerated containers um, uh, because they're seen as being more valuable than the than the family life of the crew. Yeah, yeah. So they and there's like one spot on the ship where the the network is hot in this little um, stairwell on between floors two <laughs> and floors three where. At, like after dinner, you go out and you can't walk up the stairwell because there's all these crews sitting on the stairwell with their phones, skyping with their families right. and stuff. And it's this little glimpse. Tim loves that. Um, it's this little glimpse into into the humanity behind this mega right. planetary scaled robot that delivers everything that we use. Yeah. Um, and it's those little stories. I, I mean, Tim and I have worked a bunch together, and he writes all the scripts for a lot of the films that we do because we share that sensibility of not looking at the technology, but, but looking at the, the cultures and responses sure. produced from it. Um, and particularly looking at the, the, the cultural responses to the tech from subcultural groups, you know, the people that we don't normally look at, you know, not, we're not interested in first adopters. We're interested in like the cleaner, yeah. you know, or the, yeah. the, um, you know, the, 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 the Filipino guys on the crew yeah. that, that, that help stack the containers. Like yeah. that's where you see the real impact of the sorts of systems that we're putting in place. Yeah. You know, that's, um, that's very much resonant with uh, Nick Foster's idea of the future mundane. Like don't focus on the hero, focus on the, yeah. Yeah. Just the, the custodian, the building yeah, yeah. super, the, yeah. whatever the guy who's fixing the internet connection cable or whatever, Yeah, which yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, which I just find I, it maybe for the same reason it's like a little bit ephemeral. I like find that just fascinating, just to flip things on their head that way. Yeah, yeah, but it's also like like you know Tim always quotes the like from Gibson the the street finds its own uses for things, right? Um, uh, and that's his sweet spot. And that's when I first found Tim's writing. That's that's what really attracted me to it, and that's why I wanted to work with him was because it seemed so different to all the other sci-fi. Like like his first piece. Remember that? I don't know if you ever read. I think Paintworks. I think it was like it was about this graffiti writer that would hack augmented reality billboards. Um, so it was like like what if Banksy right. existed in a world of augmented reality advertising? And you know, Tim wrote it when he was in Bristol, like the same kind of city and region as a lot of that kind of um, UK street art scene, and it just felt fresh. You know, like, like, oh, it's not. He's not writing about spaceships. He's right. not writing kind of that 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 shitty fantasy. He's writing about. Um, uh, uh, he's writing about, you know, the real cultural implications of of this stuff. And that was, um, you know, I hadn't encountered anything like that at the time. And again, I hadn't hadn't seen something like that until I read um, uh, Ken Liu's translations of Invisible Planets. Have you yeah. started to read that? Like of all the Chinese sci-fi, like I hadn't read anything as interesting in, in science fiction after Tim until I read that. And then I was like, ah, okay, here's some different voices again. Yeah. Um, and Folding Beijing, the, the piece from that, that um, won all those awards and got all that acclaim. Um, that was like, like the best thing I read since, um, 
and now we're working on the we're doing the um uh the world building for that they're now turning into like a mega chinese blockbuster um so we're doing the world building of what this folding city looks like yeah um and hopefully it's going to be good the chinese censors may get it and turn into something terrible apparently the production company is um trying to just load it up with more and more action and just turn it into a generic sci-fi thing so i don't know if it'll survive the hollywood machine but yeah. maybe the city will look cool <laughs> <laughs> at least some interesting stuff to work on yeah so we're trying but um uh but yeah i'll be super interested in hear your conversation with tim i call him the angriest man in science fiction <laughs> he's just so bitter um uh, so maybe you can draw some optimism out of him yeah i don't know it's funny because we the 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 film that we're doing planet city that i was telling you about the brief from we got a biggest budget i've ever worked with and the the only brief was it it needs to be optimistic and we've oh. never done that especially with tim when all the stuff that tim and i work on together yeah. is always uh, the unintended consequences of technology, which are never good. Right. Um, uh, so trying to be positive or at least trying to be productive with, with our, um, world building, uh, is a, is a departure and it's really, really hard. Um, that's what we're trying to do. So, it is hard. It's yeah, hard. If you can I try and get Tim on, Tim on that, <laughs> I don't think he's got any hope left, but, uh, why, why is it try. hard though? Why is it easier to be, in, in a narrative sense, it's always like it's. it's you know, we, I'm sure you've heard it a million times before. It's obviously easier to to create a dystopia because you're you're you have implicitly a second and third act, right? Um, right. Because uh, you've got something for the character to be battling against. Um, when things work out, uh, it's hard to find the the narrative through line in that context. It's also, I think, designers are really scared off by being positive because it, it so often comes across of being naive. Mm. I haven't yet figured out how you can be optimistic and critical at the same time without being naive, just because things are so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to truly engage with the reality of things as they are. It's difficult to imagine the ways that you can construct a positive vision of a future. Um, Cause it, it seems like you have to jettison so much or you have to solve so much in order for that positive vision to be believable um uh so that's the struggle for me right. it's basically trying to fight cliche into fight naivety yeah and we're trying to push through it and that, again like just that thought experiment we went through of like okay well if we were going to kind of create this city as this single sweeping change that might combat something of the scale of climate change how might that come about what are the conditions of possibility that might allow that to occur? Like just going through that process and trying to think like, where does this inaction come from? Where is the inability to actually do anything about this clearly obvious and catastrophic issue? Where does that emerge? Um, and, and what is a possible solution just going through that? That was part of the trying to think earnestly about this, this, this story and how it might come about was to try and unpick the conditions that have kind of got us to where we are now um so yeah i don't know like try and it might be interesting to have a conversation to have with tim as well like like yeah could he ever write a utopian novel yeah <laughs> what would that look like you need you need to be 
you need to reflect some condition that adds some drama if you know in the moment or or at least forces someone to consider something to stop them make them think about something and i think just realize that i think the way i end up doing it is between irony and sarcasm or something <laughs> spf 100 daily use sunblock yeah, implies yeah, yeah. a certain set of conditions of world yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, or you know possibilities like a oh, right skin cancer like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not too optimistic yeah, 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 um, yeah. so finding the ways to do it I think and also maybe what you're describing like in that in that mundane sense so like these are just the facts of the world these are the conditions that mm. the world exists and it's somehow familiar and reflecting on their conditions of existence does her fall in that category in, in a sense, like the, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, there's, you know, Tom Cruise isn't coming in on a in, in, yeah. jetting in to save yeah, the yeah, world yeah, or something. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. Is how it is. Yeah. And there's something, there's something like, uh, dystopian, but it, it, it's functional. It's a mm. sad story about, mm. about lonely people. Mm. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, we, we were talking a lot about it actually is, is her a utopia or a dystopia actually? Um, uh and we had we had a student project last year who was like i mean hers hers a love story like it happens to you know it's not really about ai it's about human relationships um it uses ai as a means to look at that in a different way right um uh, but we were trying to think about like what would a short film be what would a narrative be that actually really engaged in how ai is going to change things so it was a Chinese student who was thinking about the role of Chinese women in, in relatively loveless marriages, um, and the impossibility of escape from, from those conditions. Um, and then looking at kind of idol cult, Chinese idol culture. And, um, there's all these dating games, like virtual reality kind of dating games that you can, that you can do. Um, so her initial response was that she, you know, she's able to sustain this marriage because she gets what she wants from a relationship from this augmented reality character who's modeled after one of her idols from, um, from, a from a Chinese soap opera, like a Qing dynasty soap opera. Um, uh, and that kind of, you know, sh things work out all right for her, but the idea that someone needs this augmentation to their, to their marriage is also pretty disturbing. Um, but then we were trying to think about alternatives for it and we kind of worked out this way that like, that perhaps it, it's almost like a marriage counselor, that this other character is a way through which they can actually start to communicate and relate to each other in new ways. And they just have to go into cosplay and do these kind of weird things together and could have gone in a really kind of strange sort of sexual direction. It didn't, but the idea that, um, AR was a, was a, a way of complementing a relationship or like, um, uh, a collaboration that might emerge, um, in a really unexpected way, almost like a form of productive polygamy, um, where it wasn't utopian or dystopian, but there was some kind of shared experience that, that might be new that might emerge. And that was kind of an interesting space. Um, I thought, and I think her, you know, could could kind of be in that territory but it's a it, it it's it's less interested in thinking about the role of the technology and more interested in in telling a, a love story basically right, right? um <clears throat> so uh yeah i think that i think there are ways to do it and essentially that's what we're trying to do with our work now is to try and think about these types of stories that are that are not traditional dystopias which are just too easy but to think about how we can tell 
um, stories that are much more complicated and that somehow offer, offer various roadmaps to um, new systems of values that might be productive, right. you know, um, and especially when we're starting to talk about like, just like what sounds like what your work is, is, is moving towards as well and moving from like, you know, thinking about autonomy and driverless cars and all that kind of stuff. We're now trying to think about climate change and a relationship to, to landscape and resources um, and to try and find ways to be productive in that space um, as opposed to just the cautionary tale. Right. Um, I think is really important and we're still figuring it out and planet city is our first kind of experiment to how that might work. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But I don't know, but it seems like that, that's a space that you're trying to hit. Like, like that's a, that's a problem space you're trying to engage with in your, your stuff now. It was definitely an aspect of, um, when we did the first TBD catalog, climate mm. change was on there, and I just remember thinking through a lot of what that world might look like as mm. as a set of mm. you know products that were kind of basically symptomatic of some kind of future condition like mm. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Cool, man. Cool. My my my, uh, my bat phone is ringing. That was good. I really appreciate you stopping um, by. I'm glad that. We finally got to hang out. I hope, I hope we. I hope we. <laughs> and there you go. Liam Young has left the studio a year ago. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. It was quite a 12 course meal of material. Don't forget to subscribe and rank the podcast on iTunes. If you do that, it helps us. Or so I'm told it helps us. Also, if you want to help support the podcast, swing by our Patreon page at patreon.com slash nearfuturelaboratory. Supporting the podcast through Patreon is the best way to show your appreciation for the effort that goes into this work and is way better than listening to ads. Again, thank you for listening and subscribing, and we'll see you on the next episode.